Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. When I last left you a few weeks ago, we were looking at verses 35 to 38, and we did not finish that passage, so I'm going to do a little bit of uh, review and then uh, move on and finish the passage this morning. Let's read Matthew 9, 35 to 38. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As Matthew is wrapping up chapter 9, he, he adds this passage in as sort of a bridge to connect the main body of chapters 8 and 9 with chapter 10. And what he describes is the essence of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He is, in a sense, summing it up. Uh, in all that he did there in Galilee before he begins focusing on training of the 12. And so just before telling us about how he commissioned and sent out the, those men, Jesus, uh, Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry and, and his compassion for the people who were without a shepherd because they were being led by false shepherds. And it says that Jesus was going through. That verb is an active verb. It has the idea of a continual unceasing effort. He was constantly going through all the cities and villages. It was nonstop ministry. And there were a lot of small villages and cities that were scattered all over what was very rural Galilee. And Jesus was constantly moving through them. And Matthew says he was doing three things as he did it. He was, verse 35, he was teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of illness. First of all, it says he's teaching in their synagogues. Now, we saw that at the time of Jesus, there were synagogues in all these little villages and towns. They were usually built on a hill. If there wasn't a hill, they were built on the highest spot in town. If there wasn't a high spot, they would build them down by the river. And the Jews always thought of these synagogues as a place of teaching and instruction. They came there together to learn. And they became, the synagogues became the public schools for the training of boys in the Talmud. Uh, the, it was the, which is the collection of rabbinical rules and traditions, things like that. And the synagogues also became theological schools. But the primary role of the synagogue was to teach and instruct in the scriptures. Uh, the Jewish historian Philo, who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, at the time of Christ, wrote that, the scriptures, I'm sorry, the synagogues were mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of scripture. Uh, so uh, that's what they were doing. And when the sermon was given on any given day, it could be given by any leading member of the congregation who was erudite or knowledge in the scripture, and he would stand up and give the sermon. And if by chance there was a visiting dignitary or a uh, rabbi, uh, visiting in there that day, it was proper and customary for that rabbi to preach and give the sermon. It was what they call the freedom of the synagogue. And both Jesus and Paul took advantage of that privilege, which was instrumental in spreading the gospel in the first century. 
<clears throat> so Jesus travels around Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, expositing the word of God, and in his case, it's direct application. Um, there was a second element, and that was he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, the word translated proclaiming means to herald, to make a public announcement, to make a proclamation. He wasn't just teaching in the synagogues, uh, but he was also out on the street corners, on the hillsides, by the Sea of Galilee, along the roadways, in the fields, wherever he went, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is more the evangelistic aspect of his ministry. This was his outreach to those who were outside of the religious culture. Uh, they would have been the sinners, the irreligious, the Jews who were marginal in their commitment. And his message was always the same, good news. That's what the word gospel means. Uh, good news about what? It was about the kingdom. Uh, the Jews had waited so long for the kingdom, and now the good news was that the kingdom was within their grasp. Uh, this was new revelation about God's plan of redemption. He wasn't just proclaiming a future kingdom when he was preaching the kingdom. He was calling people to believe in himself. And the moment anyone believes in Christ, he enters the kingdom. So Jesus had a twofold ministry. He was teaching the exposition of the Old Testament, giving its proper understanding, speaking of its fulfillment, and on top of that, proclaiming the new covenant, the unfolding of revelation that had never been known before in his proclamation. The third element of Jesus' ministry was that both of those speaking ministries were verified by his miracles. Notice the end of verse 35, it says that he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And that's the place of Jesus' miracles, third place, because they're not the main issue. They were only God's way of affirming the validity of his teaching of the Old Testament and his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, so what then is the summary of Jesus' ministry? Three things, teaching, expository teaching, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and three, healing people with a tenderness of his care that manifested the heart of God. And that's where we stopped last time. So let's look at Jesus' motives in verses 36 and the first part of 37. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, excuse me, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is a marvelous disclosure of the Lord's heart. Uh, the reason why he ministered like he did. And it's very simple, compassion. Jesus often taught in locations where there were hillsides that he would stand on higher up while the crowd spread out on the hillside below him. And as he looked down the slope, he could see a mass of humanity before him. They were always there. Everywhere he went, they gathered. If he crossed the Sea of Galilee in a boat, uh, people jumped into other boats and followed. Uh, they, they hounded him from town to town. Uh, most of them came with physical needs, diseases, deformities, sicknesses, illnesses of every kind. And so he saw the crowds, but he saw beyond their physical needs to their true need. He saw the deepness and pervasiveness of their sin and the desperate plight of their spiritual blindness and lostness. And consequently, he felt compassion for them as only God can feel. He cared for them because he was God incarnate and it's God's nature to love and to care. 
First John 4, 8 says, God is love. Marcia, could you give me some water? So Matthew says he felt compassion for them. Now, what does that mean? Our English word, compassion, comes from the Latin compassio, uh, meaning to suffer with someone else. Uh, but the Greek word that's used here is more interesting. Uh, it's a word which refers to feeling something in the bowels, in the intestines. Uh, the people of biblical times used words that expressed emotions and attitudes in physiological terms. Uh, when something was deeply emotional for them, they, they recognized that they felt it in their gut, in their intestines. Uh, so uh, they had actual physical symptoms. And so they developed this word which referred to the movement of the stomach and the intestines when someone feels deep emotions about some situation. And so we find this word used in Scripture. In the old King James Version, in 1 John 3.17, it says, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shut, shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Uh, now that doesn't communicate very well in today's culture. Uh, so all of the modern English translations use something similar to what the New American Standard says, which renders this verse as whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Um, listen, the word heart isn't even in that verse, but no one in our culture uses the term bowels of compassion. So... <laughs> to express any kind of idea of love and care and concern. Um, we use the word heart because in our time, the heart is considered the center of such emotions. Uh, however, the Greeks use the heart as their reference to the mind and thinking, the intellect. Uh, the heart was the source of thought and action, whereas the bowels were the responder and reactor to outside stimuli that created emotions. So Jesus felt a deep, emotional love and concern and compassion for the crowds. This was an expression of an attribute of God. He cared because God is love and love cares. It's the nature of God. Uh, the first great uh, motive in the heart of Christ that caused him to teach and preach and heal was that God cares about men. Uh, it's his nature to care. Thank you. Uh, and so it is over and over again stated in the gospel record that Jesus had compassion uh, because God cares by virtue of who he is. For example, Matthew 14, 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Matthew 18, 27, he gave a parable in which he said the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And of course, he is the Lord in that parable. Um, Mark 1, 41, speaking of a leper, it says, move with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Uh, Mark 5, 19, he told the demoniac from whom he cast out many demons, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy 
on you. Jesus had compassion because it was his nature to love. Listen, does, does God care supremely? Yeah. See, he, he cares and he loves beyond anything that any human could ever experience. But when God was, so that means that when God was incarnate in the person of Jesus, he loved and cared and had compassion like no one ever before or ever since. Uh, Matthew even tells us back in chapter 8, verse 17, that in order to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, Jesus himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It isn't the idea that he got the leprosy when he healed the leper. It's the idea he was overwhelmed with sympathy and empathy and compassion. He felt the pain of seeing what uh, sin did to those that he loved. And as much as you may have agonized over the illness or disability of one of your children, no parent can ever feel the compassion or the love Christ felt for those who were suffering because it was God incarnate loving in that human body. As an illustration, in John 11, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus goes there, and as he's arriving at the house, Mary comes running out to him, and verse 33 says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, it's really hard to express the depth of that phrase, deeply moved in spirit to explain what it means. It, it encompasses physical, emotional, and spiritual anguish. Uh, Jesus was seized with grief as he saw his dear friend Mary weeping. And the word translated was troubled means to shake. Uh, Jesus was physically shaking with overwhelming grief because of the deep compassion that he felt for Mary and Martha. He's seized by anguishing emotion and only he would know how an infinitely loving God is racked with pain of seeing those he loves suffering with grief. And remember, he wasn't in pain because Lazarus was dead. Uh, he knew he was about to raise Lazarus back to life. So that wasn't why he's shaking in sorrow and anguish. That was because he saw the anguish and pain of seeing and knowing the impact of sin and death upon those whom he loved. He felt an infinite level of sorrow over the impact sin had made on his creation and those who were his chosen children. And so verse 35 says in English, Jesus wept. <clears throat> in Greek, it says, Jesus burst into tears. Uh, that's a rare word used only here in the New Testament, which does not mean to weep or wail loudly, but rather to silently burst into tears. Uh, the idea is that the tears just flowed out of his eyes and down his face as he stood there looking at the awful, deadly, incessant effects of sin on his beloved friend Lazarus and on this world. And then verse 38 says that he was again being deeply moved within. It's the same word as in verse 33. You could say he shook and shuddered. Uh, he was racked with emotion. So our Lord was by nature sympathetic because he was God, and God loves his people. God doesn't enjoy the sorrow and pain he sees in the world. He doesn't wish for any to perish. <clears throat> in John 18, he and the disciples are in the garden when the traitor Judas and the soldiers come to arrest him. And you see there the compassion and kindness of our Lord because remember what Peter did? He tried to chop off the head of the high priest's slave, which <clears throat> would obviously under 
normal circumstances, tried to uh, uh, cause the soldiers to grab and arrest Peter, if not outright kill him. But Jesus tells the soldiers, if you seek me, let these go their way, which John tells us was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those who you have given me, I lost not one. Uh, so even there in that critical moment, Jesus cared <clears throat> for the safety of his disciples and protected them from harm. He was compassionate for those he loved, even in the worst of situations. In John 19, he's hanging on the cross close to death. If there was ever a moment in Jesus' life when he could have legitimately turned his thoughts to himself in his own situation, it would have been then, right? But what does he do? He looks down at the foot of the cross. He sees his mother, Mary. And he knows that as the oldest son, he isn't going to be around to care for her anymore. So his father, Joseph, is dead. At that point, his brothers and sisters have not yet believed and don't until after the resurrection. So who's going to care for Mary? So he commits her to John's care. And that was what was on his heart. Tremendous compassion. He looked at the Jewish people so many times with pain in his heart. He said to them in John 540, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. In Matthew 23, 37, he said one of the most brooding things that ever came out of his mouth. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you and your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. In Luke 19.41, he approaches the city of Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. It says when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And interestingly, the word that's used there refers to loud wailing and sobbing. Here, there he is, the crowd praising him, calling him their king. He's riding on a donkey, wailing and sobbing. And then he said, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but they but now they've been hidden from your eyes in isaiah 53 3 he says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief it means sorrow and grief as god would feel it and that would have been to the ultimate infinite degree and so here in our text in matthew he uses the strongest word there was for compassion he was wrenched in his guts his intestines, his midsection. The great uh, Puritan pastor and writer Thomas Watson once said, we may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. That's his nature. That would have, this would have been news to the people of those days because you see the Greek gods were indifferent. In fact, the Greeks said that the number one attribute of their gods was apatheia, or apathy, indifference. The Jews had been taught by the Pharisees that God was sort of an ogre who was harsh and demanding, uncaring about them. But Jesus brought a whole new message. He came and demonstrated love and compassion for the brokenhearted, the downcast, and the suffering. The only people he got angry with were who? Yeah, the self-righteous. Those who took advantage of the poor and less fortunate. In 1 Peter 3.8, Peter says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. 
In other words, we're to be like Christ. We're not only called a minister, we're called a minister because we love, because our hearts are broken over those who are lost. G. Campbell Morgan, the man who mentored Dr. Martin Lord Jones, wrote this. And I'm going to have to pause for a moment. I need to sit down. I'm just tired. I can just keep talking right here. I just need to sit down and rest. Yes, the rabbis sat down when they when they talked. So I'm going to do the same thing here. Let me uh, turn this. I don't want to exclude anybody over there. No, no. Anyway, here's what. Well, it feels much better. Here's what Martin Lloyd Jones. So it said. There's no reason in man that God should save. The need is born of God's own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the ravening wolf, having wandered from the fold? It has been said that the great work of redemption was the outcome of passion for the righteousness and holiness of God, that Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. I do not so read the story. God could have met every demand of his righteousness and every demand of his holiness by handing men over to the doom they had brought upon themselves. But deepest in the being of God, holding in its great energizing might, both holy and righteousness is love and compassion. It is out of love which inspired the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided, end quote. <clears throat> There's a second element in Jesus' motive. You could call it man's lost condition. Look at what it says about why he had such compassion for those that he was ministering to. It says, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He saw their real condition. He wasn't fooled by their superficial religious facade. Uh, Matthew uses two tremendously rich words to describe these people. Distressed and dispirited. And they don't really convey all that's wrapped up in the underlying Greek words. The word translated distressed can mean beaten up, uh, battered, mangled, lacerated, torn, abused. So in terms of sheep, it was used to refer to worn out, exhausted sheep that had been harassed and injured by wolves. The second word, translated dispirited, means to be thrown down, to be lying prostate, totally helpless. It was used in the Septuagint in Judges 4.22 to refer to Sisera, who was laying on the ground dead after Jael hammered a tent peg through his forehead. So when you put these two words together in the same sentence, we learn that Jesus viewed the people as having been devastated, worn out, harassed, injured, and then thrown down to the ground, utterly helpless. It was as if they had no shepherd to protect them from all of the savage wolves that were attacking and tearing them to pieces. Now, who was it that claimed to be their shepherds? Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, too. And... So they said they were the shepherds of Israel, but that's what their shepherds had done to them. 
This was an indictment of their spiritual leaders. Their spiritual leaders didn't show them any pasture. They didn't feed them. They didn't bind their wounds. Instead, their spiritual leaders mutilated them. They were mangled and lying helpless, unable to protect themselves from the devastation caused by the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a graphic picture of uncaring, unconcerned spiritual leaders. And we see the result for the people. Bewilderment, weariness, wounded, helpless. And it happened because their shepherds never helped them or but rather harmed them. Over in chapter 10, verse 6, uh, Jesus referred to them as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, and the phrase literally means the destroyed dead sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, so this is a terrible indictment of their leaders. They're offering a religion that didn't lift burdens. It loaded burdens on them. They were fooling around with arguments about the law and their traditions, and they were utterly indifferent to need. They couldn't have cared less. <clears throat> in Matthew 23, Jesus says in verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. In verse 13, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. In verse 14 says, you devour widows' houses. <clears throat> and he goes on and on in that chapter, just ripping them apart for how they set up false standards of righteousness and how they kill the prophets and would do the same to everyone who opposed them. It's a terrible indictment. These were the leaders, the supposed shepherds, and that's what Jesus saw. We see the same situation today, don't we? We have pastors in churches around our country who tell people that God is so good that he would never send anyone to hell. That So as a consequence, people are content with themselves and they see no need for repentance, thereby shutting and closing the only door of salvation that God's provided in Jesus Christ. And most religions tell people that if you only will perform this ritual or this rite or this pilgrimage or this sacrament or this, this uh, sacrifice and gives this much money, God will be satisfied with you and you'll go to heaven. And so they leave men deceived and lost in their sinfulness. And if anyone does proclaim the truth of God's word about the LGBTQ folks and their agenda, you'll hear people say, oh, that's intolerant. That's inappropriate. They claim to be Christians, so how can you say they aren't? You're a bigot. Or if you speak about the dangers of wokeness invading our churches and the danger of making repentance from one's whiteness a part of the gospel, people will accuse you of being a racist and a white supremacist. Listen, the pastors who approve and accept so-called gay Christians into their churches and those who have accepted the doctrines of wokeness and incorporated it into the gospel are shutting people out of the kingdom of God. They are mangling them and mutilating them and leaving them lying helpless. And if you don't see that, you have been misled by the enemy. You don't see sin and its dangers the way the Lord did. Can you imagine how wonderful it must have been for the people of Jesus' time to hear him say, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he said those words, he was playing off of the things that the Pharisees required of people to be considered righteous. Their yoke was hard. It was painful. It was destructive. <clears throat> and Jesus says, my yoke is easy. They needed a shepherd and he longed to shepherd them, to gather them under his wings as a hen gathers her chicks. There's a fearful passage found in Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4. It describes the false shepherds of Israel who were hurting the people all those centuries earlier. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. In John 10, 1, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up by some other way, is a thief and a robber. In other words, false shepherds aren't really true shepherds. The Apostle Paul was also concerned about that. In his parting words to the Ephesian elders, you remember what he warned them about? He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For after I know that after my departure, who's coming? Savage wolves who will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Jesus looked at the people of Israel as those who were without a shepherd. Those who had been battered and wounded and injured by the so-called shepherds who were watching over them. But then it says at the beginning of verse 37, it says, but then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Here in the middle of this, he suddenly changes his metaphor from shepherding to harvesting. But he continues to give his motives for ministry. Jesus ministered not only because it was his nature to have compassion and because the people had a deep need, but because there was a harvest of souls to be saved from eternal judgment. These distressed people constituted a harvest waiting to be reaped. Now, where the Old Testament speaks of reaping people, it's usually a metaphor for judgment. And so a few Bible teachers think that Jesus is talking about the coming judgment upon the nation for its rejection of Christ. However, I don't think that's Jesus' point here. Let me, to me, it doesn't fit with his compassion for the distressed, hurting, helpless people who need a shepherd. Jesus will develop this metaphor of harvesting those who receive him further in chapter 13, where it will become clear that in the process of bringing in the good grain, there will be the necessity to separate out the tares from the wheat. So the judgment aspect of harvesting is maintained there. But here, that aspect is not in focus. 
but rather the bringing in of souls into the kingdom of God. However, in knowing that the harvest of souls is plentiful, we must not forget that those souls must hear and believe the gospel or they will be lost. Now, the word plentiful means great, many, much, large. There weren't just a few lost souls out there waiting to be harvested. There are many lost souls. And we have to understand that even in the midst of a culture and society that is increasingly opposed to God and to our Lord, there are still souls that need to be harvested for God. Still souls to be harvested for Jesus Christ. The problem is, as Jesus states at the end of verse 37, what's the problem? Workers are few. There aren't enough people involved in harvesting the grain that's ready for picking. Up to that point, it was basically him and John the Baptist. So that brings us then to the final point, which is Jesus' plan. Here's how he plans to harvest these needy souls. Look at verse 38. <clears throat> Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Here Jesus tells us, tells, tells his disciples what his plan is for bringing in this vast harvest of souls. Since the laborers are too few, they're going to need others to help. But instead of saying to them, well, the first thing we need to do is make a list of all the potential workers and then start interviewing them and training them and hiring them to bring in the harvest. No, instead of saying that, he says, what's the first thing he says to do? Pray. Pray. He says, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. He doesn't say, do it yourself and do it as quick as you can. He doesn't say, get together and strategize this problem and come up with a great program. No, he says, pray. And who does he say to pray to? Lord of the harvest. Of the harvest. In other words, we are to beseech the very God who will one day judge the nations to send out workers into his harvest to proclaim the gospel of salvation that will prevent them from coming into judgment. And what's the nature of the prayer? Notice that it doesn't say, pray for the lost. What does it say? Yeah, pray for the laborers. Think about the implications of that. We can sit around all the time praying, Lord, save my dear Aunt Betty. Or Lord, save my husband. Our Lord save my that nasty old neighbor of mine. He makes my life miserable, so please save him. But instead of praying that way, start praying this way. Lord, please see, send someone to reach my Aunt Betty. Please send someone to reach my husband. Please send someone to reach that crotchety neighbor. And if you will just keep praying that for a while, eventually, you know what you're going to say to yourself? Maybe I ought to be the person to share the gospel with that person. You see, if all you're doing is praying for the person to be saved, you can keep them at arm's length. But as soon as you start praying for the Lord to send someone to them, you're going to begin to feel like perhaps you're the person who ought to go, and that leads you from intercession for them to involvement with them. 
And that's exactly what happened to the disciples. He tells them in chapter 9, verse 38, to pray. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, which we will look at next time, Jesus summons his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So he sent them out. The ones he told to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send for workers became the workers that he sent out. Now there's a very interesting term in verse 38. It says to pray for the Lord to send out workers. And the Greek word is balo. It means to throw. We throw a ball, right? It means to throw. But the word used here that is send, translated send out is the word ekbalo. He adds this little prefix ek to the word, which intensifies it. And so the meaning is to throw out by force, to cast out, to expel, to drive out. The word is used many times in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons. He drove them out by force. So then, the what that means for us is that we are to pray for the Lord, that the Lord will forcefully throw workers out into his harvest. And that he will shove them out there, cast them out there. And when you genuinely pray from the heart for someone to be sent out, to share the gospel, you will find that those who he sends out will talk about a compelling desire to go, an irresistible compulsion to go out and share the gospel with those people. So pray that God will send them out, that he will cast them out by force into his harvest. So when you're faced with a problem, any kind of problem, there's no need to panic. Instead, pray. Pray for the Lord to solve that problem, including the need for workers in his harvest of souls. And as you pray, you may find that perhaps you're going to be the one that God will use to solve that problem or to go into his harvest, just like the disciples found themselves to be the ones who Jesus determined would be involved. It's amazing what you can do if you get involved in the Lord's work. One night in 1870, in the East End of London, a young doctor was turning out the lights of a mission hall in which he was working. And he found a ragged little boy hiding in one corner. And the little boy asked him if he could please stay there because it was warm in the corner and he could sleep. And it was a nicer place than he always slept normally. The doctor said no. Instead, he took the homeless little boy to his own room. He fed him, he bathed him, and then he asked the little boy to tell him his story. He learned that the little boy was living in a coal bin, and there were a number of other little boys also living in the coal bin. So the doctor asked the little fellow if he'd take him to where the coal bin was so he could see for himself. And they went through the narrow alleys of London, and finally in the darkness of night, they came to a hole in the wall of an old factory. Little boy said, look in there. So the doctor struck a match and looked in through inside the hole, and he crawled into a 
filthy coal bin cellar, and he found 13 little boys there clothed with only bits of old burlap to protect them from the London cold. And one little fellow had his four-year-old little brother tightly clinging to him. They were all orphans. And the doctor said that then and there he caught the vision of how he could serve the Lord. His name was Dr. Thomas John Bernardo. He established a group of homes for homeless orphan children, and he cared for all of those little boys and girls. <clears throat> and by the time of his death in 1905, he had established 122 such group homes capable of housing and caring for over 8,500 boys and 1,300 girls. Not only did he provide for the children, <clears throat> but his homes provided Christian-based education and instruction for the children. They also had job training in carpentry and metal work for the boys and domestic training for the girls so that they could be employed as cooks, seamstresses, and servants. And the newspapers of London reported at the time of his death that Dr. Bernardo's homes over the years had taken in and surrounded over 60,000 children with Christian atmosphere. Hundreds of those children became believers and followed Christ because Dr. Bernardo had the eyes of Christ to see into the darkness and the heart of Christ to draw the people into the light. And as a result, he harvested many souls for the kingdom. <clears throat> I just pray that we will have the same initiative and insight to do the same to whatever degree the Lord grants to us because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And that brings us to the end of that chapter. And my voice isn't holding up, so I'm going to stop. I'm not going to move on, even though we're very early. Uh, any uh, comments or questions? Yes, Ingrid. George Mueller also had the same mm -hmm. history, which was wonderful yes. to read about. Mm -hmm. I saw another hand there. What was the Ezekiel verse? I missed that. 34, 2 to 4. 34, 2 to 4. I think sometimes we switch that around. We get in our mind that the, that the, the workers are plentiful and the harvest is just yeah. We don't need it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we sometimes act like we live in a society that has so rejected Christ that there really isn't anybody out there interested in listening to us. They're not really, they don't really want to hear the gospel. It's just the opposite. When, when I was in law enforcement and uh, I made the transition from being this exalted leader in one agency to just being a guy down at the bottom in this other agency, um, they naturally, guys wanted to know why I was willing to do that. And it opened a door for me to be able to share what the Lord was doing in our lives and the gospel. And I found that these guys, tough, cynical, insensitive cops who were largely made that way from dealing with a culture in which every moment of every day someone's lying to them. Uh, they themselves were often very concerned about their spiritual situation. They weren't 
they saw the worst of society all day long and it it made them willing to listen and it's the same with every profession folks there's people out there who are desperate to hear so don't don't think that the society's gone this way and nobody's interested anymore the lord has his harvest and they're there anything else frank would you close us with prayer